So this is something I do mention in the book. We had a neighbor who, as we say, climbed in early and absolutely loved Bruce. And several of us, my brothers and I, and another friend, we made fun of her constantly. And we said things like, Bruce who? Bruce Stringsbean? He's skinny. He's from Jersey. Anything we could think of to make fun of him about, we did. And then we realized how wrong we were. And we've had to do a lot of mea culpas since then. So it was my first concert was between Darkness on the Edge of Town, which came out in 78, and The River, which came out in 80, when he was touring at that point. And it was in Kansas City, actually, because I was out there. But by then, I had already moved over. I had already climbed in and that kind of cemented it. The And all of us who made fun of him, we all became major Springsteen fans and have never regretted it ever since. I remember very distinctly, it's almost like I have this sort of frozen memory of exactly where I was and when it happened. I was on in the backseat of my father's car driving to school um, and we were at this junction about five minutes away from the school and Hungry Heart came on the radio when I was 16. And to this day, I don't know why, but having then got so much into Springsteen's music, Hungry Heart is a great song. I love it to this day, but it's there's lots of other things that he did that's sort of more representative of his work, I think. But anyway, something about it just completely spoke to me. And I was like, told my sister to quieten down, asked my dad if he could crank the radio up. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson, and we are solidly on the Bruce train today. And I am thrilled. I have a couple of friends, writers, and Springsteen fans that we're going to discuss the Mary question the whole episode because they are the writers of the wonderful new book, Mary Climbs In, The Journey of Bruce Springsteen Women Fans. Lorraine, Donna, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jesse. It's great to be here. Yeah, yeah it's great to be. This is fun. So I, I did want to share that at the end of 2020, I was I had a soul searching. And I realized that if I wasn't careful that my guest list would consist of nothing but old white guys, middle-aged white guys. <laughs> and I have no problem with middle-aged white guys. I am an old white guy, but I truly wanted, and starting in 21, I specifically tried to get more a more diverse guest list, younger fans, female fans, non-binary fans, whatever I could do because it is very easy, the old joke, what do you call two white guys talking, a podcast, that I wanted to diversify the uh, audience. And so I am just so thrilled that you both have agreed to join with me and we get to discuss your wonderful book. 
So let's start with you, Lorraine. Tell us a little about yourself and then we'll get to you, Donna. So I was one of those people that, according to my high school friends, I announced when I was about 15 that I was going to be a psychologist. So nobody was ever surprised. That was my field. And but I feel like next to psychology has always been the arts, creativity. What does that mean? Music. What does that mean? My dissertation a million years ago at the University of Kansas was a deep dive into one creative artist, what they call the representative case study. So 300 pages about of one person really delving into creativity and what that meant. So I feel like I've always had this kind of, I've said to people, I've always been interested in what is the meaning of life and where do re, how do relationships fit in and what is your identity? Those kind of things are so important in psychology and they're so important in the arts. And this work on Springsteen brings that together in a really cool way, which I love. And there's a lot of other work I do as a psychologist. I do teaching, I do some clinical work, I do other research, but there's something about this, not just because I love Bruce, but because there's something about this is really close to my heart. The other thing I would say is that I grew up in a family where fandom was like a normal thing. I, you know, we, we were just obsessed with various people that my mother with Harry Belafonte, we'd be dancing around the, the living room to Harry Belafonte, my dad with Frank Sinatra and some of the great opera singers, the Italian side. So fandom and, and of course I was a little bit younger, but my older sister, oh my God, I can still see her and her friend, Kathy, like screaming their heads off to the Beatles. So fandom has always been like a normal part. I don't see it as something weird or whatever. And it just seems like an important part of like, these people are important to us that there's reasons we become fans. So, so I think, I think yeah. that's. No, that's a great elevator pitch. You guys were talking about what's your elevator pitch. That's great. The 300 page, was it on Bruce? The 300 page, just, yeah, your study. Oh, no, it had to be on a, on an artist who I could actually interview and have okay. them do all sorts of things. Yeah, no, it was okay. getting, well, that's interesting, getting into the creative process. And Bruce has certainly written a little bit about his creative process. Probably some of it he's going to keep secret from us, but there's Absolutely. a depth there. You, you don't just do these things lightly. But yeah, it's more about the process. All right. Very nice. Donna, how about yourself? I am British, as you can probably hear from my voice. So I grew up in uh, the Midlands of Britain and I lived there well into adulthood, well in the north of England and worked there and then moved to the US about 17 years ago now. And I work in healthcare. I'm an educator and trainer in, in healthcare, but alongside, and it wasn't always my passion. Unlike Lorraine, I was not always destined for that, but I've always loved to write. So alongside my healthcare career, I've always done a lot of writing. I Way back, I thought I'd be a journalist. That, that speaks to that. I do a lot of creative writing and sociologist as trainer. My training, sorry, is in sociology. I think that one of the things that attracted to me to writing, well, it's the reason we write together, Lorraine, and perhaps we can get into that later, but is that we bring these very different perspectives. So Lorraine's very interested in the depth around things and I'm in the personal, and I'm also very interested in that, but we're more with like in the context of where we grow up and the kind of social relationships that we form. It was a really nice combination for us to work together in that way. I've not spent ages 
thinking about creativity other than my own work around writing and taking many writing classes and things like that, but not in that kind of academic way as Lorraine has. But, but I think that it was a nice kind of combination of the two of us. So how about you? Were your parents into music growing up? Yes. So my parents were really into music also, and I was lulled to sleep every night listening to music. They had stereo in the living room and pretty much every night they would we put us to bed and then we would listen to whatever they were listening to to try and while we fell asleep. And they were very diverse in their tastes. So I grew up listening to the Beatles and to Frank Sinatra and to country music, Kenny Rogers, some John Denver, Ella Fitzgerald. So they liked a really wide spectrum of music. So it was always something different. And we actually knew some, we had some friends who were British musicians. So I grew up in in that environment and also not seeing it from the other side. So sometimes we'd go out for dinner with our uncle, as we would call him, family friend, who would be asked for autographs and things like that. So seeing both sides of being a music fan myself and my family and then seeing the kind of other side from the entertainer's perspective. Um, that was very interesting growing up. So both of you, as you, I, I find two kinds of guests, the ones who as they reach teenage years, they expand their horizon and they don't abandon their parents' music, but they just add to it. Or they totally turn off from their parents' music. And then when they hit their 30s, they go, oh, this Willie <laughs> Nelson guy might have something. So Lorraine, which one was you? Or were you somewhere in the middle? Um. Probably somewhere in the middle. Um, I will just say that for my wedding, this is going to seem way too extravagant, but we had a big band, like a 20-piece big band, um, people that my dad knew that played all around Connecticut. And we also had a DJ. And so for our opening dance, we danced to... When I was in my 30s, by the time I got married, we danced to All That Heaven Will Allow, a Bruce Springsteen song. And whether you know it or not, it's a rumba. I'm okay. sure you've <laughs> been thinking about that all the time. <laughs> and my husband's really good at leading and I'm okay at following. Uh, so we did that. And then we just went into some big band music. So I feel like I, by the 30s, I had both. I think I ignored some of theirs for a while. But by the 30s, like you were saying, I definitely had both. And, and I've never stopped loving Harry Belafonte. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with there. How about you, Donna? I'm going to say similar, actually. I was somewhere in the middle. I think there was definitely a phase in my mid-teens, probably 14 to like late teens, 20, that I would say I didn't listen to anything that my parents would like or approve of and definitely rejected it. But I, with the exception maybe of Sinatra, I think I never lost my love of Sinatra all the way through. But then as I got older, I definitely came round to listening to more of their music again. And, and now both my parents are deceased and I find it very comforting actually to listen to some of that music from my childhood and listen to more of it as the older I get also. So I think it was just those like mid-late teenage years when I was very into a lot of British indie, new wave, um, punk kind of post-punk music that I was like, I'm not listening to anything they listen to. Um, I, I understand totally. You both have expressed a little bit. We've exchanged some emails in to set up this interview. So I'd love for you guys to start and we'll start with you, Lorraine. 
can you remember when you first discovered Bruce and can you articulate, which you probably can since you wrote a book about it, what about his music spoke to you? So this is something I do mention in the book. We had a neighbor who, as we say, climbed in early, absolutely loved Bruce. And several of us, my brothers and I, and another friend, we made fun of her constantly. And we said things like, Bruce who? Bruce Stringsteen? He's skinny. He's from Jersey. Anything we could think of to make fun of him about, we did. And then we realized how wrong we were. And we've had to do a lot of mea culpas since then. So it was my first concert was between Darkness on the Edge of Town, at, which came out in 78, and The River, which came out in 80, when he was touring at that point. And it was in Kansas City, actually, because I was out there. But by then, I had already moved over. I had already climbed in, and that kind of cemented it. The, and all of us who made fun of him, we all became major Springsteen fans and have never regretted it ever since. And I think for me, the, so if you think about the psychologist and what is the meaning of life, darkness on the edge of town really drew me in, in a way that Born to Run started, but darkness did it. Uh, Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, 
you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. How about you, Donna? Yeah, so I also write about this in the book, but I remember very distinctly, it's almost like I have this sort of frozen memory of exactly where I was and when it happened. I was on in the backseat of my father's car driving to school um, and we were at this junction about five minutes away from the school and Hungry Heart came on the radio when I was 16. And to this day, I don't know why, but having then got so much into Springsteen's music, Hungry Heart is a great song. I love it to this day, but it's there's lots of other things that he did that's sort of more representative of his work, I think. But anyway, something about it just completely spoke to me and I was like, told my sister to quieten down, asked my dad if he could crank the radio up. And then the next Saturday, because I used to go to music stores every Saturday pretty much with my best friend, I went in and, and bought The River. First of all, I bought the single, I'm sorry. I bought the single, took that home. And then the next Saturday I went in and bought the album and then accumulated the back catalogue and everything I loved about it. And yes, I, th- I, don't, I think it really spoke to me in the record form. It spoke to me in the sense of this sort of longing and yearning that I felt at that age, but for this kind of bigger life, this more alive way of living. So that's what I first heard in it was like this searching for this bigger, more alive life. And and then a few weeks into this kind of going through his back catalogue, buying all the records that my, spending all my pocket money on the records, there was an advert up in the store for Bruce Springsteen and East Street Band at my local arena. And I just walked in, and said, do you have any tickets left? And they said, yes. And they, I paid five British pounds which, <laughs> and bought two tickets. I bought two tickets, so I bought t- 10 pounds and persuaded my best friend who was not converted at this point. Like I, she was, but she went to everything with me and she was not a convert. But I said, please, can you come to this? She's, I don't know if I like him. I don't get it. I was like, please, I've been to many things with you. Just come. So we went to the, the show None of us, neither of us had heard of Bruce Springsteen before I got into him. No, we didn't know anybody who liked Bruce Springsteen. We were not in that world at all. And she walked, I remember her walking into the stadium going, everyone is so old. What are we doing here? (laughs) And somebody offered us a hundred pounds each for the tickets, which was a fortune in those days to my, to to 16 year old. Sure. And yeah. And my friend was like, I'm going to sell my ticket. I'm like, please don't sell your ticket. She was basically, I don't know what it is with this singer, why you like him so much, but this better be the best show I've ever been to in my life or you owe me a hundred pounds. So I don't owe her a hundred pounds is the end of that story. (laughs) I love that. One of the things that I'm smiling at Lorraine is I grew up, my dad was in the army, so we moved around a lot, but we mostly spent time in, southwest louisiana and so very big country music a little bit some french music and i remember being in a grocery in a barber shop sometime in the middle 70s and the either the newsweek or the time with him on the cover was on and talking about like one of the biggest rock stars and I went, who's this guy? Have they never heard of Elton John? Have they have never heard of Barry Manilow? Because I was an AM radio kid. Had no idea who this was. And I often think back about that. I 
unfortunately, I did not. I want to go back to that 15-year-old Jesse and go, hey, maybe turn your channel to the FM channel and go buy a couple of these albums and learn earlier. You've both mentioned, and I'm a firm believer there's two kinds of people in the world. The people that go to their first Bruce show and go, wow, that was long and move on. (laughs) (laughs) And the others that say, oh my goodness, when can I do this again? (laughs) And I'm sure there's somewhere in the middle, but it feels like that's it. You either, you get it or you don't. Um, I preface this all the time, Don and Lorraine, that the amount of times you've seen Bruce perform live is in no way a fair barometer of what big of a fan you are. There are thousands of fans who have never seen him live that adore the man and his music. But for the record, do Donna, do you count how many times you've seen him? I stopped counting. And I I say this, I stopped counting somewhere around 60. Okay. So it's above that, but I really don't know. And I, I definitely was a slow starter because living where I did and the age that I got into him. And there was, then there was obviously a lot of shows for, I only went to that one tour on the river show on the river because I didn't know I was going to like it. And and then I was born in the USA. I went to some tours, but I didn't travel around Europe. So there was only limited options to see him for many years. I confess that when I moved to the States and living in the Northeast, it was a bit like the kid landing in the candy store where all these opportunities, I know it's still hard to get tickets, but it felt like there was just these opportunities to see him in the way that I hadn't had before. So I definitely went through a few years of maximizing that opportunity but you made me laugh with what you were saying because my husband is definitely in that first category I took him twice and he was looking at his watch and (laughs) he sat down a couple of times and and I vowed never to take him again and then I tried with the Seeger sessions I thought he might like that because we've been playing a lot as a family and he did enjoy that more but he's done he doesn't need to see him again yeah there is that one of the every once in a while I'll say to my lovely bride because she is a casual fan at best is if you really want to go i will gladly take you but you've seen one show in this tour or you've seen a couple and so if you don't really want to go it's okay she saw me she saw him in dallas and she saw him in houston and enjoyed both shows a lot it didn't bother her that the set list didn't change at all she enjoyed it a lot uh, did not understand why we went crazy when he did If I Was the Priest, but she was happy for us. <laughs> Lorraine, how about you? Um, I've never really counted, but I've tried to think now. Um, I'm thinking it's in the 40s. Okay. Um, I've never, I think I've hit every single, sh- since that 78, 80 time, I think I've hit every concert, mm-hmm. every tour, but um, I've not often gone to more than say two at a on one um because i always felt like i just wanted to hold each one special i ran into people who would go like five nights in a row especially in new jersey mm-hmm. or something and i, I sure. never, never did that it's interesting about the set list because my daughter who's a grown-up more or less just saw him in atlanta i think it was his second show and then she just saw him with us in rome and she said the set lists were very different um because I've been hearing this thing that the set list is the same, but I think over in Europe, he changed up stuff, but, and I've saw him at Donna, what's it called? The Beacon Theater in Boston, that tiny little theater. 
off the common when he was doing solo. I was in the fifth row, mm -hmm. things like that, to the giant stadium shows, to this place at, at Circus Maximus in Rome, where you never actually saw him. You just saw the Jumbotron. So I feel like I've seen a lot of different things. The Seeger Sessions, that tour was very mm -hmm. different. I love that. That's been a big part of our family life also. But I've, I'm going to guess in the 40s. I was telling my wife what we were going to talk about. And she said, that feels like a niche book. And I said, I think in a lot of ways, all books are niches. If you're talking about mm -hmm. an artist of Bruce's celebrity and his stature, because if you're just doing another book, what's unique? I'll let you two decide what you want to start. Why did you decide to write a book? Do you want to have a go, Lorraine, or shall well, I? There's, there's, why did we decide to, to go in this direction and then why it became a book? Okay, so, yes, that, yes, that sounds perfect. Two, two different. Yeah. And so why we decided to go in this direction of women fans is that it felt like there was a lot of stuff written about Bruce that was from the um, point of view of an individual I love Bruce and this is what he's done for me. There was a great book by uh, Daniel Cavici from RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, Tramps Like Us, you probably know it, uh, that looked at fans and even he mentioned that women hadn't been given enough attention. Uh, we met, we were asked to, we both volunteered to write a review of the documentary. What's the name of the documentary? Springsteen and I, I thought it had the word friends in it. Mm -hmm. That was done how many years ago? 10 years ago? Probably uh, it was, yeah, at least. Yeah. So we, that's how we met each other and watched that documentary. And it's a very enjoyable documentary, but we were talking about what gets chosen for a documentary as opposed to what a lot of other people see. And that's how we got into the idea and Donna, please add to this, but that's how we got into the idea of doing the survey. Plus I'm a, I'm, we're both big believers in survey and qualitative research with not just surveys where you check little boxes, but you have a lot of space to respond. Those are some of the main things that got us into a lot of what they say about fandom doesn't fit us, doesn't fit our friends. Yeah. Fit yeah. People we know. And and there's even a, I don't know what's the best word to use, but a little bit of a negativity about, oh, women fans are just there because the guy's hot or mm -hmm. they're in love with them, whatever. And yeah. Yeah, I think we talked a lot about that, Lorraine. We started talking yeah. about all of that. And we talked about, I think, watching the documentary and reading, we just started conversations, basically. And I had long thought I'd love to write something about women fan, I mean, particularly because I had felt like I got teased a lot about my fandom. And there's one thing that Lorraine and I talked about, and you didn't feel that so strongly, Lorraine, right? But I felt that I'd been teased a lot about you just because of the tight jeans and all this other stuff. And I was like, no, that's not what it's about. And um, so I'd long had this sort of desire to to write something. And then I think it, it mushroomed from there. We just started talking about our experiences and said, maybe we'll write something for a conference paper. This would be the Springsteen Symposia 
in New Jersey for a while, organized through Monmouth. And I can't remember what the exact impetus was, but we thought we'll do this survey, right? We'll and put it out through Backstreets, which they agreed to, which was great. And maybe we'll get a paper out of it, an article. And we thought we'd get a handful of, we didn't think we'd have a handful, but we thought it'd be great if we got a hundred responses because we wrote these very open-ended surveys. And if we got 50, that'd be great. And then we were just overwhelmed by the number of responses that we got. Within six days, we'd got 1,200 responses and they'd written, you know, written all these amazing things. So then we were like, all right, we need to, we need to write more. And the idea for a book grew from there. The documentary is one of the reasons why I started this podcast. Obviously, over 1,200 responses, there has to be a lot of diversity, but in, I'm probably giving away part of the book, but Donna, did you guys start seeing themes as you started getting the surveys and putting them and trying to mark the data? Yeah, yeah, we certainly did. And so what the book obviously explores those themes in right. some depth. And and there's a lot, we, we asked about how people first got into Springsteen, what kept them a fan, but at the heart really was, and I know Lorraine can speak to this more, is, was the this notion of relationship, right? That they, that what they had some kind of perceived relationship with Springsteen that helped them on their life journey, right? So that's one of the reasons the book's called The Journeys, is that really was a developmental journey that a lot of fans went through as being, listening to Springsteen, following that, that really helped them on their own path. <clears throat> it's that thing about a, and again, I don't want to say Springsteen is the only one who has fans like this. And years ago, a undergraduate actually who was in class with uh, Daniel Cavici, who I mentioned at RISD, did an undergraduate paper talking about meaning of music for certain groups that had really intense fans. And so Daniel connected her up with me to talk to me about the Bruce. And as an undergraduate, she was writing really beautiful paper just for a class about meaning, community, finding yourself, all this kind of stuff. She got into something back then. And we found so much of that with these women. And, and of course, we're asking certain questions, but they took the answers in a lot of different directions and really seeing how much of a being Springsteen and his work is in their life. And there's a word that I love in psychology called internalization, how you take something in, it becomes part of you. It feels like Springsteen and his work has become like a part of so many of them. And that just feels like such a big deal. And especially in our day and age when families are sometimes not there in the way they could or should be, communities are not there in the way they could or should be, religious kinds of churches, temples, et cetera, are not always there in the way and people don't go to them in the way that they might have in the past. It just feels like there was so much meaning making that, and not in an idea idolatry sense at all. I don't want to move into that. Uh, uh, it's wonderful when someone says, I don't agree with everything he does. He shouldn't have done that, but he did it. Okay. I still love him. Uh, the, just how, how much 
a partner in life he had become for so many of them through bad times, through good times. It really, we felt like we, we connected into something very deep uh, and very meaningful. And I don't want to take away very fun. Also very fun. Mm-hmm. Adding the, the, the fun, the community, etc. cetera. The, uh, it, it just really felt like there was something big there. And even several years later, we did a couple of years ago, a second survey, which had a smaller, I think 600, I don't know, I don't have the numbers in my head, I think around 600 during the pandemic, we wanted to find out how things had changed. And even then seeing how important Springsteen was, I'm sure he did that, what was it, DJ, doing the DJ thing. That was so important to so many women. Coming out with Letter to You helped so many people through that time. Having a a companion, having somebody to walk the streets with. There's, we don't get that a lot in life. (laughs) I think that was the heart of the book, right, Lorraine? That sort of companion idea and that in sort of serving, the fandom serving so many roles, right? So, but Springsteen's this companion who can be a friend or a family member or kind of take on a role of sometimes a guide or sometimes somebody who's akin to a therapist and obviously not a therapist in the traditional sense, but somebody who's there. The music is there in really important times around healing or difficult times in life so there's a lot in the book around those themes and the kind of different ways that shows up in women's lives and in terms of the word niche I've actually had now these are my friends they could just be saying this to make me feel yeah. good who even though they aren't extreme Springsteen fans maybe they've seen him a couple times or they know somewhat mm-hmm. about him but they were saying that just the the themes that are talked about just touch them. Uh, So that's the sort of meaning in life part and relationships and all that. It is a niche book. I totally get that. But I think, I think there are other people who maybe they haven't declared themselves as full out Springsteen fans who could still really uh, gain something from it. It's, It's a very personal, to me, it feels like a very personal kind of book. Yeah. And I think if I could just jump in, because I'd like to say something about somebody who didn't was like an international Springsteen fan for a lot of most of my life was like I think that what we found in terms of the themes was that you know the things were being said by women from all around the U.S. but also from many countries around the world we had people from all around the world expressing very similar kind of things and sometimes also reflecting on the ways in which he represents America outside of the country which was also very interesting but we spent a lot of time looking to see if is there a lot of difference between things that were being said between you know older fans or younger fans or people who are just recent fans or where they live and really we found a lot of really some same things being said across everyone i've joked that you have to have your heart broken a couple of times or been in a long-term relationship to enjoy tone of love and then I had a 19-year-old that says that's his favorite release. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to throw that theory out the mm-hmm. wall because you don't know what speaks to what speaks. And I get a little bit of grief that this passion is slash an obsession. And there is certainly a couple of my lovely bride's friends. Does Jesse think like Bruce is Jesus or something? And I'm like, <laughs> it just he. His music brings me joy. Mm -hmm. His music keeps me company when I'm in a bad place, when it is something that matters to me. 
and I'm, I'm in groups of other podcasters and I will often reach out to these podcasters and say, I do a music interview podcast. It's started out as Bruce Springs theme, but now I branch out. So if you're passionate about another musician, you should join me. And I always, I like music, but I don't really have a favorite band. Like, I'm a little sad for you then. <laughs> I'm just, honestly, I don't care if it's the Rolling Stones or Taylor Swift or whoever you want. It just seems a little sad. You don't have that joy of something. I do love the fact that sometimes we fans are put in a in a box. Oh, of course you like this, Jesse, because you like everything. And I'll go, if I never hear Ghost of Tom Joad again, the release, I will be happy. Don't like that CD at all. Seeger Sessions, I hear everyone loving it. He doesn't sing Dog you in a frog you in a court in the way my dad did. So therefore, <laughs> Bruce is wrong. And I don't like that release. Now, that's after... funny. I, I skipped that one song on that album all the time. Yeah, it is. It, he didn't sing it the way my dad sang it to me. Right. And so therefore, it's wrong. Right. Uh, now, after watching the live in Dublin, I'm mad I didn't go to a live show because mm. I'm like, okay. I may not care for the CD, but that looked like a hell of a show. I don't think the man's perfect, and I don't think everything he does is magical. But I do think it's pretty amazing that at his age, and I said at the end of 2020, if we could get a new president and a new Springsteen album, 2020 would not be the worst year ever. And and from my perspective, we got both. And I think... To put the sports analogy, you throw Letter to You, Western Stars out there. That's pretty two good albums for this late in your career. So you've gotten all this information. You're seeing these themes. And you talked about maybe doing it a paper. So, Donna, you had talked about you've done a lot of creative writing. Lorraine, it sounds like you've done a lot of uh, work with your academic. We'll start with you, Donna. How did it go from maybe there's a book in this? And let's go <laughs> forward. That was the, Lorraine, you have a great way of putting it about walking up a mountain. I'll let you say that. But it that was a long process, right? We had a long, then it became a very long process. We wrote a book chapter for which we have a chapter out in a different book by William Wolfe, which came out a few years ago. And, but we still felt there was a lot to, that we hadn't said. It was great to have that opportunity. And we started to write the book. And the process of getting a book out is a lot of work. And a lot of, there was a lot of stops and starts with contracts and things like that, finding the right publisher. And we were really glad that we found Rutgers University Press, which is the publisher, which who are, who've been fabulous to work with. But yet it's been a, it's been a labor of love over many years, Lorraine. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, I was talking to somebody recently and I realized, because it was when my daughter was going to graduate school and now she's done, it's been two years that's when we first handed in the full version mm -hmm. was almost exactly two years ago. Yep. Even after that, because Rutgers, uh, because it's an, a university press, they actually do sort of a peer review process. And so it was gone over in depth by a really good uh, write, uh, writer, knew about Bruce Springsteen, somebody who knew a lot about the whole area and, and also an academic. So it's, it took another year and a half 
to get it to the final stage, even when we thought it was at the final stage. The, I feel like we were able to split things up at times. And we were also able to say, oh, I know you love this part, but I don't think it needs to say all that. So we were able to do that. And it's, this is, I had an earlier book out uh, that also had a co-author. So I had a little bit of experience in that. But it's quite a process, as anyone who's written a book, I think, would, would say. The, I think what kept me going is, at least in psychology, and I'm sure in sociology, they, you, have a, you have an obligation to the people who have given up themselves to be your, if you want to call them subjects, participants, whatever. I think we tended to call them participants or just the women fans. You have an obligation to get that material out there if they've given you so much. And so I always felt that we've talked about that. And it was just so interesting. It, it kept my interest. I think it kept both of our interest. It wasn't like, oh, God, I can't believe we're writing about this. Yeah, well, I think those were definitely there were moments when we could have given up. But yes, the topic <laughs> still kept our interest and the women's voices just I still hear them in my head, not as voices, but the I occasionally will almost quote one of them. So I, I think all that is what kept us going and that it really did need to be a book and it needed to have a certain kind of publisher that wasn't going to make a book that would cost $100 or something. It's a tricky world out there and neither of us is an expert at it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that you've hit the nail on the head. Like the two things I think that kept was the interest. This is a passion for us as it was for the women and and that commitment to getting their words out. Um, and I, I think I remember several times during the writing process that we, you know, maybe struggling over some revision or thinking about what we're going to do and move things around. And then you just read one of these great, some great stories and quotes in the book and you bring it back about this is such a great thing that this person said, we've got to keep going. So yeah and and to me if if we can can switch the the narrative a little bit about what is meaningful to many women and maybe for some other women with with fandom and other Mm. ways that yes we could scream for paul mccartney and john and ringo and george scream our head off and that's all really good too but there's also things can also go deeper and obviously they did with a lot of the beatles too but right there's something else there that's very meaningful. Uh, yeah, and I have a similar feeling. There are plenty of days when I get home and I have no interest in recording an episode. Just when I send the email, hey, just confirming we still get to visit. And I'm almost like, please say no. And they'll go, yeah, I'm all excited about it. And then the moment they start telling their story, I'm the energy comes back this joy of exploring how Bruce's music has gotten them through things that they've struggled with or they've celebrated and I just had a father on who said I've been and he went through all the different ways he's tried to meet Bruce (laughs) he's just tried to going to Broadway waiting even (laughs) bribed a guard hey just i just i want him to sign this book and the guy ended up ignoring him and then after they left said hey 
I could have lost my job. Here's the money back. So they go to a show and his daughter's there and Bruce looks at her and waves. <laughs> and he's okay. I got I'd rather him I'm happy he waved at my daughter, even though I've never met him. So I am curious because of teamwork, what was your process of writing? Did did you guys have notes together? Did one of you take first drafts, send it to the other? What's the mechanics? And we'll start with you, Lorraine. I think we claimed or assigned different parts, different chapters, but we all we both really worked on each chapter. I can't look at it and say this was all Donna or this was all me. We both, this was incredibly back and forth. The, we got the outline together that what the chapters were going to be. And then that changed a couple of times throughout the process, but we had the outline and we knew which questions and we both went over the responses so many times and made sure we agreed upon what they were saying. We didn't do it quite in the way that you might if you were going to do a journal article, but we did it pretty much in the way of what you would do with qualitative research, really going over it. What is What are they saying here, agreeing to that? But then one of us might start writing this chapter, another start writing another chapter, et cetera. Donna, is this the way you... Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, we both definitely had a hand in, in all of it, except for this couple of pieces in the book that are just our own personal stories, just right. the beginning and the end. And obviously we completely gave each other license to write what we wanted in those places, although we may still comment on them. But I, the only thing I would say is I think Lorraine's being, being too modest or whatever in that the psychology, which I think is one of the unique dimensions of the book, is that we're looking at this through a psychology lens in particular obviously that that's really where Lorraine your expertise really shined and came out and so all the bits that are around psychological theory and whatever I'm just like this is great and that's all Lorraine <laughs> but you reading them made sure that because we were writing them for right a lay audience psychologists I would certainly hope some psychologists will read this but we were also yeah. writing it we're writing it for regular right. people too so yeah this there was it, it's and you would say this doesn't really make sense to me right. and I've got so many other things I'm thinking, but you would help to put it in perspective. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely that. Like I was the, I suppose your test of, because we were aiming at a general reader, right? Can I, as a non-psychologist, am I getting this? And is it making yeah. sense? And is it interesting, right? Am yeah. I following along why I'm hearing that? It, I've gone through over the years where I've talked to, or I've listened to a lot of podcasts from writers, screenwriters, television writers, even novelists, and they'll talk about that often you'll have to kill your favorite joke to mm -hmm. make the screenplay work, or that even though you love this story, it just doesn't work in the narrative. Were there a couple of stories that you really would have loved to share or had in there, but it just didn't work to the narrative. And I saw you smiling, Donna, so I'll start with you. Because <laughs> I think there were a few places where, yeah, we definitely know that, that killing your darlings, that's how I always, right. we had, to do, we had yes. to do some of that if it didn't fit in with the, the structure. And then we had so much material. I think that was the other thing is that we could have twice as much about every point, I think, Lorraine, that we made. And um, so they had to make choices about what's going to be, if you said one thing about, a theme or a point, how many times do you want to repeat that? So that was then making choices between things that 
I like this one better or I like this one better. And we'd go back and forth sometimes on some of those. So there's definitely more that there's definitely pieces that we cut out that were like sad losses. But I don't think any of the points were lost. I think we got all the points we wanted in to the book. I think there were just times when, and there were very few, there were a couple of times where we maybe disagreed about something like there was maybe one or two quotes where I was like, I really like this. And Lorraine's like, "Mm." or Lorraine, you're like, I really love this. And I'm like, I don't love it. And so those ones, we tended to fall out, but the points were all being the same. It was just more what we selected to, to illustrate those points. Lorraine, any thoughts? It's funny because I'm right in the middle with a student of um, preparing a presentation for American Psychological Association convention, Mm -hmm. which is happening uh, in a couple of weeks and it's a poster. So you have to get it all done beforehand and uh, thank God for my student. She's wonderful at making posters. But we decided we wanted some younger, a couple of things from some younger fans. And Donna, I don't know if you remember, but we have an yeah. Excel sheet that's all yep. the earlier, the, the younger fans. And by younger, our youngest fans were 18. You had to be 18 to do the survey. So yeah. we're not talking about 12-year-olds, but right. say 18 to 35 and so I went into that the other day and I was, oh, this is so interesting. Oh, this is so interesting. Oh, we never got to use this. <laughs> yeah. so I'm yeah. very excited to get to use a couple of those for the poster that yeah. we're doing because there's just still so much more and we were just not able to put it all in. Yeah. 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 So wh- who's the audience for the book? Lorraine? Springsteen fans, men or women, I think could enjoy it. We are hoping that some people, and we've talked to some of the the people in this category who teach American studies or music studies. So academic, not necessarily psychologists. There may be some psychologists who would use it, especially in the, there are therapies that are in the arts that could use it. And but it's, I think it's fans and it's people interested in American studies. There is a field called fan studies and music studies that I think those are, those are, are three things other than fans. Donna, who else have we? Yeah, I think that's right. Cultural, sort of cultural studies. But I think anybody who's, we're hoping that somebody might pick it up who's just interested in popular culture might find popular something. Culture. Yeah. interesting in this like a general reader who's oh I know Springsteen's a big or maybe I'm interested in stuff around women maybe pick that pick it up some women yeah thank you women's studies too yeah, yeah. sure yeah. and I, I'm I'm about a third of the way through the book and I'm enjoying it immensely and I am struck by how similar my fandom is and how different my fandom is as well. Mm. It's both, right? There Mm. is a, and that's, I think, what it should be. Each of us feel like we have a personal relationship with Bruce's music, yet there is a commonality in us. And that's one of the reasons why early, I was going to Nashville for one of my first shows. And I was meeting a bunch of fans for dinner the night before. And my wife 
said, you're going to meet strangers you met off the internet. Aren't you worried? And I said, one, they're Bruce fans. Two, they're all women. So shouldn't they be worried about meeting me? <laughs> I'm the guy. I said, and third, we're meeting in a public restaurant. And and one of them was Donna with Bruce Funds, right? And mm -hmm. we just, we had the best time. And there is you, a common theme. And I think as I continue to read the book, I think that's going to be ever is we have a sense of family and friendship, the community of Springsteen fandoms that I'm sure you're right. Other bands have that, but it feels a little bit that this is something pretty special about that to quote Donna finding tickets from people around the world yeah. that, yeah. that I've done over a thousand episodes of talking to people about Bruce. Right. So mm -hmm. any thoughts on that and Lorraine? I think it's such a huge cultural piece. It's just such a huge cultural piece and he's there. He's there for so many people. And it's not that there aren't other great performers or whatever, but that bond that you were just describing that a lot of the women describe, and we need it. We need something like that. We have a definite need for it. The, because of working with some of my younger students on some of these presentations about Springsteen, We've also talked about, are there other groups like this? And even they've said, well, yeah, it's like it, but not the way you're talking about it here. <laughs> um, so it's, I, I think it's just so important. I just, a, a slight diversion. Please. Uh, I just saw this play out in the Berkshires. We have a lot of theater up here in the summer called The Million Dollar Quartet. If either of you has ever seen that. I haven't yeah. seen the play, but I'm aware of it. Yes. Okay. It's about this one day in Sun, what is it called? Sunray Studios. Yes. Sun Records. Yes. Sun Records in 1956 when apparently Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, I always forget his name, the one who wrote Blue Suede Shoes, Carl Perkins, mm -hmm. and Johnny Cash we're all in the studio at the same time and magic happened. Mm. And it was just going to this play with a couple of, with my daughter, so a young person and another couple who are very different than I am, but we're friends. It just was this reminder of how deep and emotional all this stuff can be. And how people loved Elvis for decades upon decades and people love Johnny Cash. I don't know. Does anybody love Jerry Lee Lewis that with that fervor? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's pretty wild. Yes. But even, and, and I love this and I would definitely suggest it to anybody, but even thinking about them. And of course, Carl Perkins was pissed at Elvis because of blue suede shoes and all, but, and how big they all were. There's something different about Bruce. Yeah. It just, it. That, yeah. It's what? It's that. In psychology, we talk about a holding environment, a special place where you feel safe. You feel like you're learning, you're growing. 
a holding environment, a special place. It's, there's just something. I, I do think that, yeah, and that's really interesting, the holding place, I'm not, space, I'd not thought of, I didn't know that term. So that's really, mm-hmm. but the stories that you were telling Jesse about, it, there is this kind of level of trust. If I know somebody's a serious Springsteen fan, I automatically assume that they're going to be a good person, right? Maybe that's a, like right or wrong, but a bit like I have stories similar to what you were saying about meeting these strangers in restaurants and meeting people in queues in for the pit and things like that. And then we struck up friendships. And one in Boston years ago, I met my friend and I were in the pit queue for hours and we were talking with these two guys next to us and we started chatting away and we exchanged numbers. I'm still in touch with one of them. And the next morning, my husband's like, how did you get home? And I was like, we, these guys gave us a lift home. And he's, we were really late. What time did the show finish? And I said, we sat in the parking lot for an hour afterwards, listening to all these different bootlegs of Kitty's bag after the show. And he's like, you would never do this anywhere else in your life, right? Get, get the lift home and sit in this block. And I was like, because they were Bruce fans, right? So a couple of stories. <laughs> and my wife and I, we're married in 84. So yeah. we have been together a long time and, and mm-hmm. she truly is. She is truly my best friend and she is, we have such a wonderful relationship. I told the story that Pink was coming into town and I said, what do you want to pay for tickets? She goes, what did you pay for Bruce tickets? Enough said. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Uh, I'll get good tickets. But um, we we met some friends that at the lobby of little Steven, when he was touring mm-hmm. during the soul fire time and he was talking to them. And at the time, and it's Jeff and Nancy was saying, Nope, I don't want to know anything about Broadway. I'm trying to go in totally blind. And when, and Linda's, Oh, how many times have you seen him? Like over a hundred. And so we get in our seats and Linda's, they're so normal. <laughs> yes, they're, they, we aren't all weird. <laughs> I said, they're just so normal. I'd love to go to dinner with them. I'm like, yeah. but they're just as passionate as you are crazy with them. And, then, and so mm-hmm. I do think there is that, that their love. And I've been lucky. I've only had a couple people that I've joined that has joined me that I went, I wish I hadn't there. That's been a little odd, but overall, mm-hmm. it's just been mm-hmm. great. Yeah. All right, Donna, is there something before we get to the Mary question, which I, 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 I almost feel like I shouldn't have to ask you because <laughs> the whole book, but I'm going to anything I should have asked you that I haven't. Oh, that's a great qualitative research question. I don't think so. Um, okay. People often ask us, I don't know, one of the things that people have often asked me related is this about meeting him right and that was something that came up in our studies people have said oh have you ever met him and that kind of that kind of thing so I, was, I suppose I was expecting that not that you have to okay. ask me but I was wondering if that was going to come up and, have you uh, met him only only no basically not in any significant way only on the book took his memoir tour I stood in line and shook hands and he I was once at the front and he the nicest thing a bit like the story you were sharing earlier about waving the waving at the daughter was that he we held up a sign my friend and I who was the friend I went to that first show with years Mm -hmm. later we held up a sign for dancing in the dark to ask if he'd dance with both of us because we were saying we've both been fans for decades 30 something years 
and he didn't pick us, but he looked at the sign and read it. And then he came over and, you know, shook our hands and thanked us and gave us guitar picks. Nice. So that was lovely. That was really nice. So that is a nice moment. I don't need to meet him more than that. That was really lovely. I met him at the bookstore at the book mm-hmm. signing in Austin. I've told the story multiple times that all the way driving down to Austin, I kept thinking over and over again what I was going to say, what I was going to say. I was Luca Broxa and the Godfather outside mm-hmm. where he just keeps mm-hmm. saying it may be a masculine child. So yeah, that's the only thing ever. Obviously, my white whales to get him on the podcast, but uh, yeah. <laughs> How about you, Lorraine? Have so you met Bruce? And what should I've asked you that I didn't? Uh, no, I have not even come close to meeting Bruce. I mean, I will say I've sat in, I've been within two feet of the stage a, a number, a few times, but no, yeah. I've not met ever. Okay. Um, I don't know if you would have asked me this, but it's something uh, I was thinking about with that newest album that came out the soul what's it called soul yeah Yeah, his covers album yeah that i think one of the things about his appeal is he really stands he really acknowledges that he stands on the shoulders of giants Mm -hmm. and remember when he used to always do the detroit medley yes he did that for decades and that to me was a homage to mitch Ryder, and and he's done that with so many people and when I hear I can't even hear that song the night shift without tearing up immediately Uh, and and at first when when I heard of that album coming out I was like oh he's doing covers again is it going to be as good as I'm sorry I do love the Pete Seeger session that's okay no that's (laughs) the whole point right we each have different feelings is it going to be as good as that and why is he doing this and but that song just to me that's paying homage to those who came before him and i don't know maybe talking about the elvis presley thing got me thinking about sure. them so that's that i going back to the book i think people appreciate even if they don't know him that he seems very generous kind generous i don't know i don't know what better yeah. word to use that he's it's not just all about him and I'm not pretending I know him at all and all his inner workings, but that a lot of people seem to feel like Donna was saying before they could sit down and have a beer with him mm-hmm. and, and talk. Uh, yeah. So there's something to me about, I just want to add that how he stands on the shoulders of giants and acknowledges it. He knows things set him up. And that to me is just so important. He, he knows that he's part of something, even though he's so outstanding, mm-hmm. he's, he's so incredible and amazing. He knows that people have come before him. You know, does that make sense? I yes, it make- does. And yeah. down South, we have a saying, don't forget where you came from. Yes. Right? Yeah. And I know that every once in a while, because social media can be evil, there will be people posting that he's forgotten his roots and Mm. he's now charging so much for tickets. And, oh, and I always go that I think it's music business and he's never said this is not a business, but I believe that he is trying to give us value and still sharing his creative juices with us and doing that. And I think we all can beforehand 
go, hey, I'm not sure if this is going to work. But most of the time we come back, look, did after this many years, he might know what he's doing, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? He just might know what he's doing. Oh, uh, he's earned the license to try whatever he wants, right? And most of us will be like, that'll probably be interesting, even if we don't necessarily yeah, exactly. love it. It'll probably I, be interesting. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Donna, Lorraine, this has been a joy. I am so glad I got to spend some time with y'all. Um, all right. What's the best way to get the book? <laughs> Any, I think you can order it directly from Rutgers University Press. If you Google it, on you can order it from your local bookstore. Um, keep bookstores going, or you can obviously get it on Amazon. Okay. I will look up the Rutgers link and include that in the show notes. Mary Climbs In, The Journeys of Bruce Springsteen's Woman Fans. It is a wonderful book. I am enjoying it immensely. And I, you guys were talking about you may, we're recording this about the middle of July. You're hoping to do something in the fall, maybe a joint appearance. And so hopefully if that does work out, you guys want to come back and we can promote it. But before I get you out of here, Jay Armstrong is a retired honors English teacher. When he was teaching his English class, his seniors, he would give them the lyrics to Thunder Road, and they would read them together. They would compare it to other poets like Robert Frost, would talk about the imagery Bruce paints, and then would ask at the end of the two-day class, does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? I end every podcast with this question, whether they're a Bruce fan or not. I send them in advance. You, that's your homework. Listen to Thunder Road and come up with an answer. I'm going to start with you, Donna. <laughs> Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? Mary definitely gets in the car at the end of Thunder Road. And then she goes on to write a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is a great answer, Lorraine. <laughs> She did not want to stay in the town of lose, full of losers. She got she in. in. Got in. Very nice. A couple of interesting answers. I about I'm almost 50-50 at this point. About 50 people say 50% say no. About 50% say mm-hmm. yes. A couple of my very interesting answers is she absolutely does. And the when in racing in the street, she talks about her father's porch. That's the porch that she danced across, which I mm-hmm. thought was a nice connection. Mm. Moonlight Motel, they said, is they got in the car. They went to California. And now the Moonlight Motel is oh. is mourning Mary's death. Mm. And and a couple of people go, we don't know and we shouldn't know. That mm. the whole purpose uh-huh. of the song is we don't know yeah. and mm. everything. So that's great. All right. If someone wants to reach you, how can they? Lorraine? Elmangioni at antioch.edu is probably the best way. It's okay. or just look up Antioch University, New England, and you'll find me. Yes, definitely. Right. So that, that email is the best way. Very nice. And Donna? I have a website, which is www.donnaluff.com. And my email is, my, is also on that website. Very nice. Mary Climbs In, The Journeys of Bruce Springsteen's Woman Fans, available in hardcover. It is on Kindle if you are an e-reader. Uh, I will include the link in the website on the show notes. I, I cannot 
recommend the book more. It is absolutely wonderful. It's a whole book based on the Mary question. This is awesome. (laughs) Donna, Lorraine, thank you so much for your time. Any final thoughts you want to share, Lorraine? I knew this was going to be fun, but that's why I wore my shirt. I hope everyone's showing this to everybody, but uh, I knew this was going to be fun. And I totally appreciate uh, the depth of your appreciation and how that has come out and joined us all together. So thank you. That's very sweet of you to say, Donna. Uh, say the same. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for having us on. It's been a great conversation. You made me think about things and really reflect on it in ways that I wasn't expecting. So it's really nice. It's been wonderful. Really appreciate it. That is one of the nicest compliments I can get. I love when my guests go, man, you made me think of different things. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you both. All right, listeners, go check out the book. Reach out if you have questions. Let's, Let's spend some time talking about this journey that we're all on. For now, be safe, be kind. And remember, if we open up our hearts, love won't forsake us. Just let the music take us and carry us home. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Lorraine. Goodbye. There we go. Another episode. I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. Um, So if you want to skip this, I understand. But I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at SetLustingBruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469-249-2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, Perfectly Good Podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation, where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast with my brother in time, Charles Gags. And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. You can go to our Patreon page. And support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, said Listening Bruce. The theme for Set Lessing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.